thank you uh, for that. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, the reason we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is because it deals with what we were looking at last week, specifically this aspect of Christ being a substitute. Uh, and it also uh, allows me to uh, not get off track with the Spanish ministry. They, they had a cantata today, so if I keep on with Matthew, then I'm going to be off track with them, and it's going to cause all types of problems, so I need a filler, and this falls in with what we have been looking at. So uh, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that at this time we can set up time apart to reflect on the fact that Christ became flesh. And I pray now as we contemplate that and contemplate these verses that uh, Your Spirit would work in our minds, work in our wills, uh, work uh, in us to transform us, to be the image of your Son. Father, we know it's your will to use your word and your spirit that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves. Father, it, that's our desire, and I pray that you would work for that purpose, because we know that that purpose would glorify you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Disoriented individuals are those who uh, do not know where they're going or what they're doing. And disorientation can happen because of different reasons. A person can have a, a disease and their, their minds uh, can't think uh, correctly. They're disoriented. They don't know where they're going. They don't know their purpose. Uh, another thing that can cause disorientation is uh, chemically induced. Uh, whether someone drinks something, injects something, smokes something, some type of substance is taken, and the person is disoriented. They, they, they don't know what's going on. They, they just sit there staring at the wall. Uh, they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They don't know where they're supposed to be going. And, and In fact, it's not until they wake up that they think, hey, I should do that again. Life, life situations can also cause disorientation uh, a person can go through a tragedy, and this tragedy will, uh, will cause an effect in their life. They're not sure what's the next step, wh which way they should be going. Also, uh, success can cause disorientation. There was a, a man in the town of Iscar de Valladolid who uh, won the lottery. He won it twice. Uh, the first time he won it, he was uh, so excited, he started building a house, and he didn't count the cost to build the house, and it was a huge structure. He only got the bottom part done, and you can see these columns that are up. 
lo and behold, he won the lottery a second time. And uh, he was so excited, he started trying to finish the house, and he still did not finish the house. It, you still can go there, and uh, the, the people there in the town make fun of him. Uh, he got disoriented even with success. Uh, there was a person that I knew that uh, went through a tragedy. Their mom passed away. Uh, she received an inheritance, and uh, the combination of the tragedy plus the inheritance, she doesn't know how to make decisions. She's disoriented. Uh, she spent um, $6,000 on a dog. I've never paid a dime for a dog. Uh, so to spend $6,000 for one, I was like, that's more than what my car cost. And I'm like, why would you do that? Uh, but disoriented life. Life situations some, sometimes cause disorientation. But there's another thing that can sometimes cause disorientation, and that's information. And I'll use the illustration of uh, one of the carnival rides. You, you get on the ride, and it, it circles the chair, circles, twists, and turns, and then the, the arm also turns, and then the whole thing turns, and, and your ears and your eyes are receiving an overload of information. You're just turning and twisting, going up and down, and and then you see the people get off and they're staggering, you know, trying to get to the exit, right? They have an overload of information and it causes a disorientation. Another way that this overload of information causes disorientation is, is in individuals, um, they, they consume, we're, we're consuming a ton of information, crazy information, information that uh, is really worthless. You find out the the humidity levels in some country way far away, and that's going to affect the production of a vanilla bean, which supposedly is going to affect this and it's going to affect that. And, and oh my word, we're not going to be able to celebrate Christmas. There won't be any vanilla. And then lo and behold, that doesn't happen, but the person never goes back to rectify the story. We're on to another story and overload on that information. And, and we get overload of information as we're going through our feeds and social media and everything else, there's just a bombardment of information, and it can cause a disorientation. People living for themselves. People living for um, their own purpose, focused on, on, on their survival, on, on their succeeding. You can get disoriented. Now, we find this uh, text here, and uh, it's written to the Corinthians. Now, according to uh, David Lowry in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, there's an uh, old Greek legend about a king named uh, Cyphus. He was a Corinthian king. He tried to defy the gods, and when he tried to defy the gods, he was sentenced to, a, um, to an eternal punishment. And this punishment was to push this huge stone up a hill, and he would push and push and push and push and as soon as he got to the top of the hill the stone was forced back to the bottom and he had to repeat the action. Albert Camus uh, contemplated about this and he said you know that that's that's kind of a modern man's condition. It's just purposeless absurdity of life. There is no point and many of us probably feel like that uh, maybe even today. There is no point so we make up our own rules. Well, what do you like to do? I don't like that at all. I'm going to do this. And we all decide what is the point of life. 
There's a disorientation. And in the church of Corinth, there was a certain amount of disorientation too. And when you think about um, Corinth, it was a city that had a temple to uh, Epaphrodite. It uh, had uh, over a thousand prostitutes. To be called a Corinthian was to be called someone who was immoral. It was the, the, to, to say that uh, you're a Corinthian is to say that you're someone who's just immoral, who has no standards of living. Uh, now, the church that Christ had in Corinth, we see that this ministry is uh, started in Acts chapter 18. If you were to go to Acts 18, you would see that uh, Paul was on some missionary journeys in chapter 16 through different situations. Uh, God had led uh, Paul and some others to be going to different places. Uh, they ended up in Philippi, then uh, uh, Thessalonica, and they, they kept on moving around until they get to Corinth. Now, Corinth is an interesting ministry. They had just finished with their ministry in Athens, and there was that whole situation where they, uh, on Mars Hill and so forth, uh, then he gets to Corinth. At Corinth, he enters the city, and his desire was to reach the Jews that were there. And so he started going and attending the synagogue. But they really didn't like what he was preaching to them. He didn't, they didn't like the message. Uh, he was presenting from the Old Testament uh, Jesus Christ, and, and they didn't like him, so they kicked him out. Uh, eventually, si Silas and Timothy arrived there from Macedonia. And uh, when they got kicked out, uh, there was a person, uh, Titus Justus, who was a worshiper of God, and his house was right beside the synagogue. So they kick out Paul and Silas, and, uh, and they go to the house right beside it. I think that's the first time that you see like a, a, a church split, and they cross the road and start another church. Um, that, it was right here, and this is, has set the precedent for around the world for that to happen. It, there they are, and of course there's the synagogue, and right beside of it now is a church that starts forming. And Jesus reveals to Paul and tells him not to be afraid, to, to speak boldly. And uh, he ends up staying in that city uh, for about a year. He st stays there a year and a half, six months. Uh, because of the fact that Christ had many people there in that city. Eventually he uh, takes off and goes on to do other missionary journeys. But he had been there, discipling, being involved. First he tried to reach the Jews. Uh, the Jews didn't want to hear him. He then starts reaching uh, the Corinthians. It, can you imagine a, city, uh, a church being established in that city? It would have been a crazy thing to think that, that Christ would have believers there in that city. You would think, no, those people need to leave that city and go somewhere else. But no, He's redeeming, Christ was redeeming people even in that city. Now, when we look at 1 Corinthians and we start thinking about the context of 1 Corinthians, it's really the church was a church full of problems. There was all types of moral problems going on. Uh, the church was dealing, was not dealing with sin. Sin was happening amongst the members, but nobody was addressing those issues. In fact, they were happy at the fact that they were so open to the sins. The members were fighting about who had which spiritual gifts. And some were even claiming to have spiritual gifts, which they really didn't have because they wanted to be number one. They wanted to have a, a place in front of the crowd. They didn't look at the spiritual gifts as, as a way to serve the body of Christ. Rather, they saw the, the spiritual gifts as a way to promote themselves. 
1 Corinthians is, is probably a second letter that Paul wrote. It's the first one that was inspired, but probably the second one that Paul wrote where he addresses these issues. And then 2 Corinthians is the second one that's inspired, but probably the third one where he's addressed them. While he's there, he ends up meeting um, in Corinth. He meets Aquila and Priscilla and have been working with them. The church did repent. He addressed 1 Corinthians, and there's a shift because the, the way 2 Corinthians is, 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 is totally different. The feel of it is totally different. He's encouraging them. Uh, encouraging the one that had sinned to, to restore that person, to not just keep on throwing them out, but to restore them back into it. You can tell that 1 Corinthians really had the effect that he was wanting it to have. Now, as, as we look at this text here of 2 Corinthians, there, there are some interesting things that he mentions. For example, he, he says over in chapter 1 that uh, God is the God of all comforts. Chapter, uh, chapter 1, 3... Uh, through uh, seven, that God is the God of all comforts. And he comforts us so that we can then comfort other individuals. Which gives this implication that the way we receive the comfort of God is through an individual who comes and comforts us. Uh, the idea of I've been comforted by God and then I'm just going to keep on with my life, it really isn't what Paul presents here. An individual receives a blessing from the Lord and they're supposed to share that blessing with somebody else and then that person shares it with another person. He's encouraging the believers in this, in this congregation. Now, what we're going to be looking at in these verses is that Christians must plainly beg that sinners and saints be reconciled to God. That, that's what we're going to be looking at. That they must beg to be reconciled. Sinners and saints. Now, our text over in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 20 and, and 21, he's writing to a church. In this church, there would have been saved individuals, but these saved individuals would have known unsaved people. And that he's begging, pleading with them that they be reconciled with God. Now, how is this supposed to happen? How are we supposed to be, how are they supposed to be pleading uh, to be reconciled to God, and it's by accepting your appointment as an ambassador. Accepting your appointment as an ambassador. We see that uh, verse 20 starts with, therefore. It's a conjunction, and um, uh, the word has a couple different meanings. It, uh, it's a referential, it's denoting that um, what it introduces the result of an inference of what precedes it. In other words, it's dependent upon what has come before it. It also can be a marker of a continuation of a narrative. And it can be also a marker of emphasis. So this little conjunction can have these, these different meanings. It can, it can point back to what was previous so that its argument is based on what was previously stated. It can be a marker of a continuation of a narrative. And it can also be a marker of emphasis. Now, as we look at this epistle, we, we really can't say that it would be number two because an epistle is a letter and it's not a narrative. So that kind of discards that interpretation that it's just a continuation of a narrative. The one where it marks an emphasis that therefore could be possible that, that Paul is, is marking an emphasis here in these two verses 
except for the fact that this is really something very ancient. It was a very, uh, not really used in the common Greek that Paul is writing, and it was used long before in a very polished type Greek. It really, the, the best way to look at that is that it is a, um, it's denoting that it introduces a result uh, from an inference of what was previously given. Now, as we look at that, and, and we think about that, we say, okay, what was previously given in the text? And as we look at it, we say, well, the problem is, is that verse 16 has another therefore. So we have to look a little bit further up, right? Uh, to get to see what information is giving that this, verse 20, is making, uh, based on, on what was previously given, he's making this statement. But when we look at verse 16, and we see that therefore, and we try to move our way back up to see what the point was, we see verse 11 also has a therefore. So it then now pushes us further up to find what he's making this statement. And, of course, then verse 6 uh, also has another therefore. So there's all these little paragraphs that Paul is writing, each of these little pericopes that he's writing, and each one is based on an information that's previous. So where do we finally find that there's not a therefore? And it's found in verses 1 all the way to verse 5. Sometimes um, preachers will get very cute and you say, uh, you have to see whether therefore is therefore. You know? uh, but it points to what is previous. And what we see in the previous is a comparison between two things. The, the comparison in verses 1 through 5 is between two uh, different uh, dwelling places. Uh, Paul, Paul establishes a contrast between these two dwelling places. The first dwelling place is a tent. Which, which has this idea of a temporary uh, abode as opposed to somewhere permanent. It's something very temporary. And, and Paul even goes on to say that this is uh, it's our earthly tent. It's just earthly. And he uh, addresses it as being uh, torn down. It's, a, um, it's being dismantled. It's being taken apart. We try and try and try to keep the body still working. But this uh, word for torn down, for dismantled, it is a passive, which isn't meaning necessarily that we are tearing it down ourselves. It's not like we're actively doing that, although many of us do not take care of our bodies. But rather, this is being done to us. We are being dismantled. So as much as we try to keep ourselves alive and keep ourselves healthy, we are being taken apart little by little. Uh, the contrast with this is this house. A house uh, not made of hands, but it's eternal in the heavens. A contrast between a tent, which is not a permanent dwelling place, and that's our bodies. And on the other side, there's this eternal house that God is making, which is a, a glorified body. This house is characterized as being eternal in the heavens. It, it's somewhere permanent, to dwell, where our spirits will be dwelling in it. Now, as we see, there, there should be, within those who are believers, well, really in, in, in everyone, there is a certain amount of groaning that's happened as, as we live in this tent. It says so in verse uh, 2, and also says it in verse 4. that As we are living in this body, in this tent, we groan. We, we, we're discomforted. We, we, we don't like it. And what we want to be is not to be found, as it says there, naked. 
but rather to be clothed with the eternal home. It says there in verse 4, For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groaned being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed with uh, clothes so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Many times when we think about um, what is mortal being swallowed up, we don't usually associate life with what is being swallowed up, but with death. But Paul says here that there's this contrast between what is temporal and then what is eternal. And this temporal thing must be swallowed up to give forth to life. There's this life that happens. Now this is his main argument. And this main argument establishes the next one, two, three, four, therefores. Based on verses 1 through 5, he then makes these different inferences based on those first five verses. And therefore, this therefore stands to make a, a point based on what he says in verse 1 through 5. As we look at this, it says uh, we are ambassadors for Christ. Some languages have, um, have declinable case endings. And what that means is that a word can have a different, a, a noun can have a different ending if you want it to be the subject or the nominative. If you want it to be a possessive, you put a different ending, that would be the genitive. Uh, you can put a different ending if it's the direct object of the sentence, the accusative, or the dative, the indirect object. So you can have one word and you put different endings on it to say where it's supposed to be grammatically. So therefore, you can arrange the sentence, the word structure, however you want based on the case endings. In English, we, we kind of follow a simple pattern of you usually put the subject first and then the verb and indirect object, direct object. We're all following me, right? You remember this? This was basic stuff, right? Uh, in, in Greek, you don't have to do that. In fact, in Greek, you can put what is most important right at the beginning, even though it might be what's supposed to be the, the, the direct object. And in this sentence, even before the therefore, it are the words for Christ. For Christ. Now, for Christ uh, starts this section. That word for carries this idea of a substitution or in place of Christ. It's a preposition. Paul's saying, for or in the place of Christ. What in the world could a person be doing in the place of Christ? Christ made everything. Christ sustains everything. Uh, Christ holds us together. Christ is working in us. You think about the, the, when he talked about the, um, the vine and the, the branches in John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Um, can a branch provide fruit apart from the vine? Well, no, it can't do anything unless it's connected to the vine. So what in the world could we do as a substitute, as, a, as in the place of Christ? He answers it with a, with a verb, a verb that has a um, first-person plural. Uh, it's ambassadors. It's, it's not the, the, the subject, it's not the... The, the position of being an ambassador, but it's the action of being an ambassador. I don't think, I, I tried to think of um, the verb to be an ambassador. I don't think there is a verb to be an ambassador. You, it, I'd have to make it up, and then poor Gigi would be cringing back there as I tried to make up this word. But it, it's the verbal form of being an ambassador. 
It'd be the verbal form. And it's not just the verbal form of being the ambassador, but it's also the fact that it says, we. Paul includes himself. Now you would think, well, of course Paul is an ambassador for Christ. But he's not saying me and Timothy and Silas. He's saying we are, which includes the Corinthian church, this church that is in this very pagan city. They, too, are ambassadors for Christ as a substitute for Christ, as in, in Christ's place. They are ambassadors. That's what Paul writes. That's what he tells them. Now, what does the ambassador do? The ambassador does not send himself, does he? Or herself. Rather, the ambassador is sent. The ambassador doesn't represent his own interest. If he does, he gets fired, right? Can you imagine having an ambassador going and doing his own thing? That'd be absurd. And for the most part, ambassadors live overseas. Can you imagine only in rare situations do ambassadors have time here back in the States, but their career as an ambassador usually is somewhere else, representing the interests of their country, pleading with the people on behalf of their country. That's what an ambassador does. And he says, we have this position. And it's in substitute for Christ. So as if, if Christ were going to do it, but instead of Christ doing it, we are doing it. What in the world could we be ambassadors for? What, what is it? Well, he says, as. That as is a, um, it, it, it puts a figurative of speech that, that marks it as, uh, as though God were making appeal through us. It, it, it's a, it does a comparison. That as makes a comparison. And the, the challenge, as, um, as Roy Zuck says in similes, is that the challenge is to determine in which way the two objects are similar. How are they similar? Well, just as... Uh, God makes an appeal, or a king would make an appeal, the ambassador is also supposed to be making an appeal. How much of an appeal does God have to save? I don't know. He sent his son to die. That's, that's pretty incredible. To take my place. I should have died, but he did it, so... How much desire does he have to, to plead? He says, as though God were making an appeal. It's, it's to urge strongly. And that urging strongly is through us, as though we're the ambassadors. The comparison is between God and, and the ambassador. And the question that I would wonder about us is, how good of an ambassador are we? How good of an ambassador are we? God is pleading. He's, uh, John, uh, in, in Jesus said in John that he sent the Spirit to convict of sin, to, to show. So God's doing his part. He does all the work of salvation. We're told to be ambassadors. Are we, are we working with the same effort? Are we representing God correctly? Now, it says, uh, 
it goes on to say, um, uh, we beg on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he, he, uh, he appeals through us. We beg. That beg makes a, this also a strong appeal for something, to, to make a request. And it's for uh, that same word, for Christ, uh, on behalf of you. That on behalf is the same word that we have for Christ, is as a substitute for Christ. We beg on, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here he's addressing these individuals. A, a church that had sin in it. And you might think that maybe the reconciliation that needs to happen is after all the sin that they did, maybe they need to get things right between each other. It's sad when there is a bunch of contention in the church. They smile at each other. <laughs> God bless you. And then afterwards, when then in their little groups, can you believe? Maybe it's a reconcile. No, it's not a reconcile to one another. Paul says, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And that word reconciled is, is, a, is a passive. So it's not that you're initiating this reconciliation. Reconciliation already has been initiated by God when he sent his son. You must accept it. You must accept it to be reconciled to him. Now, as we look at this, we, we want to apply it a little bit. Uh, we're not going to get to verse 21. We'll, we'll stop at verse 20. Uh, let's apply this a little bit. By accepting your appointment as an ambassador, we, we have to realize that ambassadors go. Only in rare situations you see an ambassador stay in their home country. I mean, it's a very rare situation. Their career is spent overseas. I mean, can you imagine how silly it would be for an ambassador to be appointed, to be approved, and then for him to just go home and stay there? I mean, that would just be crazy. Well, he, he wouldn't have a job. But Paul tells us that we're ambassadors. In fact, look over to verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. That in Christ goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's go there one second. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul is talking about spiritual gifts, and he's talking about especially how one receives these spiritual gifts. And in verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. That act of being put into the body is an act done by the spirit. So when we go back and we say, if anyone is in Christ, that action of being in Christ is an action done by the spirit that puts that person into the spirit at the moment of salvation. They've been put. So if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're a new creature. A new creature that has a new agenda. No, no longer to live for self, but to represent the person who has sent him. Ambassadors go. Now, not only do ambassadors go, but ambassadors communicate God's message. And this, is, this should be a relief for you. 
because you don't have to come up with a message. You don't have to invent something. You don't have to try to do PR for God or anything like that. All you have to do is reiterate the message he's already given. It's, it's fantastic. He has given the message. Now, look what it says over in, in, in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors who have been reconciled. The individuals who have been reconciled are the ones who have accepted this fact that God has sent Christ and through Christ has reconciled. How, when did he do that? When he died in my place. And now, because I've been reconciled with God, I have a ministry of reconciling others to God. That's a ministry we have. In this, we have to acknowledge, to be reconciled to God, that there was a hostility between God and yourself. You have to. You can't say, well, I'm okay with God. Maybe he had a problem with me, but hey, I'm good. One has to acknowledge that there was a hostility, that there was a relationship that was broken. Our sins separated us from God. God reconciled us through Jesus Christ. He paid the, 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 the debt of sin. He did that. He reconciled us through Christ, gave us this ministry of reconciliation. To be reconciled to God, you must believe that God reconciled you through Christ. That's the only way. You accept what he did. You accept that God sent his son to die in your place and that that allows you to be reconciled to God. There's many people that have different ideas of how they're going to get to heaven or get to a place of bliss. But it's only through believing that God sent Christ to reconcile you. And the question that we have to ask is, have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Maybe you know a lot of Bible stories. Maybe you know a lot of religions. Maybe you've helped your parents. Maybe you are raising great kids. Maybe you're a good, faithful worker. None of those things reconcile you to God. They don't. <laughs> Society appreciates all that you're doing. But that doesn't change your relationship to God. It's only through accepting that you are reconciled through Christ that you can have a relationship with God. Biblically, though, we also have to think about that not only are unsaved people not reconciled to God, but also saved people can break fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 1, 6, 8, and 10 communicate that individuals can sometimes, believing individuals can sometimes deceive themselves. Thinking, I've got no sin. The, the pridefulness to think that I'm okay, it's just everybody else is a sinner. And I must share it with everybody that all these other people are sinners. It's an arrogance that needs to be uh, repented of. Uh, John writes in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Husbands are given this admonition in 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, uh, as with someone weaker, since uh, she is a woman, and, she, and show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Many times husbands want to go around all bitter and mad, and yet not realizing that their prayers are being hindered. Now, we've seen that uh, ambassadors must go, ambassadors must communicate God's message, ambassadors uh, communicate with urgency because the tent is being dismantled. That therefore points back to verses 1 through 5, and in 1 through 5, the message is, there is an earthly temple, an earthly tent that's being dismantled. It gives an urgency. It gives an urgency because those who are not in Christ do not have this eternal dwelling place with God. Therefore, we should be pleading, begging on behalf of God to be reconciled to God. Now, as we look at this, it might be possible that someone here has not been reconciled to God. Maybe you attended church for a long time. Maybe you were baptized as a child. Maybe you've helped out in churches. You've served. But you've never been reconciled to God because you've never accepted the work of Christ as that means for reconciling you to God. Therefore, you're still in hostility. You're still at war with God. And today I would invite you to repent of that, to accept what Christ did on the cross, his death in your place as a substitute. For other of us here, maybe we haven't been taking this aspect of being an ambassador for Christ, as a substitute for Christ. We, we have accepted Christ. We're thankful, but we don't see ourselves as a substitute here on earth to be pleading with people, begging them be reconciled to God. And I believe that for those who have that attitude, they should repent of that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you sent your Son. Father, it can be very hard to keep focused in this time. There's Christmas plans, there's political situations, there's sickness, there's all types of stuff going on around us, and Maybe just the bombardment of information has caused us to be disoriented. I pray now as we look at this text that your spirit will focus our minds on our purpose. That we're supposed to be ambassadors, pleading, begging on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.